My name is Tim Nugent. I am a, uh, an old elder here. I'm not, is that redundant? Um, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm an old elder or a former elder, but either way. Um, and uh, for, thank you. Um, I'm starting to get that way. Um, but um, I, for the last, I, I stepped out of being an elder so that I could, um, among other things, focus on finishing seminary, which I'm uh, hopefully going to do uh, in December, which I'm really excited about. Um, yes, thank you very much. Um, but uh, another love of mine, um, for those that don't know me well, um, I can be a little nerdy. Um, I have, I, I can get my geek on, and um, one of those, it, it seems to come out a lot more when Marvel uh, movies come out. Um, yes, I don't, I don't see, Jeff ran away, um, but if, thanks Jeff, um, if you all look at Jeff, you'll notice he's wearing a Captain America t-shirt or shirt right now, so you'll relate to this, but um, I, I, so I tend to get my geek on, and this, this right here combines two of my loves. I saw this shirt at, uh, at my kid's school, and I thought it was awesome. It's got like all the superheroes there, and then Jesus is in the middle, and it says, and that's how I saved the world. That, that, do I need to explain the joke? That's, all right. It's just, just proof that I can get my geek on. Um, but um, so if you'll indulge me for a moment, and um, I will pick on Jeff because he'll, he'll get this, but I saw the most recent Thor movie recently. And thank you. And um, do you remember that part? Do you remember that part uh, at the end of the movie when, when Loki goes into Odin's vault because he has to go and get this thing to kill this, the giant monster thing? And he turns and he sees the Tesseract sitting there. I'm just thinking that's going to come back to bite them in the end. I'm just thinking that. I'm, what? If you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, you do understand? Okay. If you have no idea, that's because you haven't seen the other 65 Marvel movies. Okay? And that is kind of how Nahum was the first time I read it. We're in the book of Nahum. We've been going through the Bible book by book and looking at an overview of it. But this is not 65 independent books. This is one story, and it's God's story. Nahum is the sequel, if you will, to Jonah. So if you notice, we didn't start with the... um, the movie, because I wanted to introduce it a little bit, because I wanted to make sure that you understood and had seen the other Marvel movies before you watched the latest release. So keep in mind, Nahum is written about 100, maybe a little more than 100 years after the book of Jonah. We all know the account of Jonah. And they both address Nineveh. Jonah's going to Nineveh. The book of Nahum is written about Nineveh. And there's a couple things as we look and look at the movie that I want you to remember. Number one, it's about roughly 100 years, maybe 110 years, maybe a couple generations later. 
And then the second thing is, is that when Jonah was written, we had the north and the south. But in this time, Judah is the only part of Israel that's left. Assyria, the capital, or Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, has come in and taken Israel away. And Judah has left. They're kind of a vassal state, but Judah is caught in this position of they aren't really sure what to do with Assyria. And at times, Assyria has come and knocked on the doors of Jeru- on the walls of Jerusalem, saying, we're, we're, we want to take you over, and we're going to. And this isn't just like a little army coming and doing this. This is like ISIS on steroids coming to destroy you. These people are freaked out. And they're brutal. Absolutely brutal. A lot of times they wouldn't even have to take over a country because they were so afraid of the the brutality that they would face if they fought. They would just capitulate. So as we watch Nahum, keep that fear in mind. So let's go ahead and, and let's look at the Gospel Project. The book of the prophet Nahum. This short prophetic book is a collection of poems announcing the downfall of one of Israel's worst oppressors, the ancient empire of Assyria and its capital city, Nineveh. The Assyrians arose as one of the world's first great empires, and their expansion into Israel resulted in the total destruction and exile of the northern kingdom and its tribes. The Assyrian armies were violent and destructive on a scale that the world had never seen before, and so Israel and its neighbors were awaiting the downfall of Assyria, which eventually came in the year 612 BC. The Babylonians rose up and began a rebellion that overtook Nineveh and brought down the Assyrian Empire. And so, chapter 2 depicts the fall of Nineveh in vivid poetry, and chapter 3 then explores the downfall of the empire as a whole. But this book isn't just an angry tirade against Israel's enemies. The introductory chapter shows us that there is way, way more going on here. The book opens with an incomplete alphabet poem that begins by describing a powerful appearance of God's glory. It's very similar to how the previous book, Micah, began and how the next book, Habakkuk, is going to conclude. And it's God, the all-powerful creator, coming to confront the nations and bring his justice on their evil. And the poem opens by quoting from the famous line of God's self-description after the golden calf incident in the book of Exodus chapter 34. The Lord is slow to anger. He's great in power. He won't leave evil unpunished. And so the rest of the poem goes back and forth, contrasting the fate of the arrogant, violent nations with the fate of God's faithful remnant. When God brings down all the arrogant empires, he will provide refuge for those who humble themselves before him. Now, here's what's really interesting, is that you thought this book was only about Assyria, but Nahum actually nowhere mentions Nineveh or Assyria in chapter 1. And when he describes the downfall of the bad guys, he uses Isaiah's language about the fall of Babylon, which happened much later in history. And not only that, Nahum also describes the downfall of the bad guys as good news for the remnant of God's people. It's a direct allusion to Isaiah's good news about the downfall of Babylon. 
And so all these little details from chapter 1, they come together to make a key point. For Nahum, the fall of Nineveh is being presented as an example, as an image of how God is at work in history in every age, how he won't allow the arrogant or violent empires of our world to endure forever. And so the message of Nahum is actually very similar to that of Daniel. Assyria stands in a long line of violent empires throughout history, and Nineveh's fate is a memorial to God's commitment to bring down the violent and the arrogant in every age. With this perspective from the opening chapter, the book then returns to its focus on Assyria. And so chapter 2 describes the Battle of Nineveh and the overthrow of the city in progressive stages. So first we see the front line of Babylonian soldiers, and then we read about the charge of the chariots, and then the chaos on the city walls as the city is breached, then the slaughter of Nineveh's people, then the plundering of the city. Chapter 3 goes on to describe the results of the city's downfall for the empire as a whole. So Nahum begins by announcing a woe upon the city whose kings built it with the blood of the innocent. It's an image of how injustice was built into the very system that made Assyria so successful. But their violence has sown the seeds of their own destruction, and so Assyria will fall before Babylon. The book concludes with a taunt against the fallen king of Assyria. He's stricken with a fatal wound, and from among all the nations that he once oppressed, no one comes to help him. Rather, they sing and celebrate his destruction. And that's how the book ends. Now, this is a gloomy book, but it's important to see how Nahum's message addresses the tragic and perpetual cycles of human violence and oppression in every age. Human history is filled with tribes and nations elevating themselves and using violence to take what they want, resulting in the death of the innocent. And the book of Nahum uses Assyria and Babylon as examples to tell us that God is grieved and that he cares about the death of the innocent and that his goodness and his justice compel him to orchestrate the downfall of oppressive nations. And God's judgment on evil is good news, unless, of course, you happen to be Assyria. Which brings us all the way back to the conclusion of that opening poem in chapter 1, which tells us that the Lord is good and a refuge in the day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. And so the little book of Nahum invites every reader to humble themselves before God's justice and to trust that in his time, he will bring down the oppressors of every time and place. And that's what the book of Nahum is all about. It kind of reads like a Marvel movie a little bit. Um, but I wanted to read to you, this is a book about judgment. And we're not comfortable with judgment in our culture. I, when, when I chose this short straw, or Craig handed it to me to do Nahum, um, I honestly, I, I had to look to see where it was. Um, I guess I haven't hit that one in seminary yet. But it is a short book. And if you read this thing, it comes across harsh. As you study it, or as I studied it, when I read Jonah, it opened up in a new way. Give context, 2 Kings. If you've got your Bibles, grab them. I'm, I'm going to be flipping around. We'll probably do some. But I, I, I like, I don't know, I'm, I'm old school. I like the Bible. I like the hand. Open it up. Turn on your, your uh, devices, whatever it is. But open up to 2 Kings uh, chapter 18. Verse 32 through 35 says this. Um, I'll start at 31. 
do not listen to Hezekiah. This is the, uh, a representative of Assyria talking to the king of Judah or talking to the, the, the Judahites, if you will. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a, pres- by a present and come out to me. And every one of you eat from his own vine and every one from his own fig tree and every one of you drink the water, waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own. Second uh, Kings 19, or 18, I'm sorry, 1832. A land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive groves and honey that you may live and not die. The, the, the representative is saying, look, there's a better land here for you. Be, listen to me. But do not listen to Hezekiah, lest he persuade you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. And then he says, and this is where we start seeing the mocking. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath? And Arpod, where are the gods of Sepharvaim and Hena and Iva? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hands? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. Arrogance, utter arrogance before God. But maybe it was justified. I mean, they had wiped out everyone else. They'd taken Israel already. That's the reference to Samaria here. And now to Hezekiah, this is in that in-between time between Jonah and Nahum. Now they're mocking Judah and saying, don't trust God. He can't deliver you. There are three statements that are in the first chapter as we saw there. There are three statements that I want to focus on in Nahum that tell us something about who God is. And this is where I'm going to spend our time because I think this is what's relevant for us. But it's so critical as we understand and see these these three statements of who God is, of who he says he is, that we keep in mind the arrogance, we keep in mind the brutality, and we keep in mind this is written to Israel, to Judah at this time, not to Assyria. Three statements, Nahum 1-2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Nahum 1-3, the Lord is slow to anger, but strong in power. And then the third one, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. All of these set up Nahum. The rest of the book, as we, as we saw earlier, as hopefully you remember, is all about how I'm going to completely wipe out, wipe out Nineveh. And as a side note, it's interesting. I, I think it was last year, ISIS, another very brutal army, if you will. I don't want to give them that much credit as, as saying they're an army. But they were, uh, uh, Nineveh was located just outside the wall, outside the, the city of current day Mosul, Iraq. And the, there's still ruins there. They had been just uncovered for 
thousands of years, but I guess back in uh, maybe the 1800s, I think I was reading, that they, they started uncovering and found pieces of the wall so that there were still were pieces. Well, ISIS walked in there, and as they're uh, part of their wiping everything off the earth, they, they got rid of all the archaeological digs there, and they just they continued to destroy Nineveh. It's kind of ironic. God is still, it's completely wiped out, but it raises up, and what, is, what happens? It gets wiped out again. Nineveh, the, the prophecy, the destruction in Nahum, described in 2 and 3, is still going on today. That's, com- that, that's, that's pretty much consistent, persistent destruction. So, but what do we do with these three statements, and how do these fit in? First off, the Lord is a jealous and an avenging God. I love these statements because this describes who God is, and this is something that I can take and, and apply and understand because I don't know where you are today. I don't know what brought you in here. Maybe it was a, uh, uh, a, nagging, a nagging husband that brought you in here because, gosh, I guess I'll go. Maybe you're here today because... You know, my kids, I, I'm having kids and, and I want them to have a good moral foundation. Maybe you're here because you're lonely. Maybe you're here because you know there's something more out there. I don't know what it is. But regardless of why you've come here today, you're here seeking something outside of yourself. And that outside that I believe is God. And In this book that we've been studying in Route 66, we get to learn who this God is. And these three statements will help. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. This is one of those statements that we have to be careful with because we want to take and put our jealousy and our understanding of jealousy and how we treat it onto God. Jealousy and avenging sound like poor and and bad things. But at the hands of a God that is willing and, and, and knows everything about everyone, the jealousy that he shows is an amazing thing. And if you really think about it, it makes sense. If, if, my, if I was running around and having uh, other dates and, and bringing women into my house and my wife didn't get jealous of that, you'd probably wonder, eh, I'm not sure she really cares that much about him. Um, turn to Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 14, I'm just going to read. And, and this whole section uh, is one of my favorite, Ezekiel is one of my favorite books. But it just gives such a picture of the jealousy that God has. And it's a righteous justified jealousy. Listen to this. So God is, is bringing the prophet Ezekiel and kind of giving him a vision of walking through the temple, but a temple, the house of God. And the way I, I want you to picture this, imagine yourself walking through your house and someone's bringing you through, kind of like I think the Christmas carol, right? And no one can see you, but you're seeing pictures on the wall of Someone that is uh, trying to take your family away, and they're on the walls. 
So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's. This is verse 14, Ezekiel 8, 14. So he brought me to the Lord of the north gate, <coughs> to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz, a foreign god, inside the house of the Lord. Verse 15, then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, you will see greater abominations than these. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar were about 25 men with their back towards the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. He's carrying Ezekiel through, and he's saying, look at that picture Uh, of that other man that's sleeping with my wife. Oh, hey, come over here. Oh, see, look, here he is in a picture with my family at the fair. Is that a justified jealousy? Isn't that what we, I mean, if, if I didn't get jealous at something like that or if my wife didn't get jealous, there'd be no care. There'd be no love there. The Lord is jealous and avenging God. This is the jealousy that we see of God in this, in Nahum. And then we see the second part of it, avenging. Now, this is where it gets tricky because, again, I am not God. I know that shocks a lot of people. But we are not God. And we cannot place our actions, our emotions, our reactions to things upon God. Because he does things in perfection. God is avenging. Romans chapter 2, you don't need to turn there, 1 and 2 says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever whoever you are, let me start over, O man, whoever are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to the truth against things. And then it goes on to say, later on in this, it says, he tells us, he tells us not to take vengeance upon ourselves in that judgment. Well, okay, you're telling us not to take judge, not vengeance upon others, but you do it? Leviticus 19.18 is the command where he says, don't take vengeance. It says, leave room for vengeance. And then in Leviticus, in, in Leviticus 19.18, it follows and it actually says, love your neighbor. It's amazing that those two things are put together. Don't take vengeance and then followed by love your neighbor. But what in all of those verses about vengeance where he commands us not to take it, he says leave room for God. And this is where we are able to love our neighbors. This is where we are able to rest in the vengeance because we know. I mean, vengeance is not based. I I just watched the movie uh, End of the Spear. I don't know if you've seen that. It's about the Elliots and when uh, I'm, I'm not going to go into detail, but some missionaries that were killed. And the, this tribe just back and forth, killing each other, killing each other. And gosh, we see it in, in the Middle East and we see it in our own country with the race divide right now. Oh, you did this, so I'm going to do this. 
you know, this reaction back and forth and back and forth, and it just doesn't end. Why? Because we don't do vengeance perfected. We don't leave room for a God that knows what justice truly is. And he knows how to bring justice. It's righteous vengeance. This makes sense in the book of Nahum, right? The Assyrians were brutal. This is what Jonah wanted when he, when, when he didn't want to preach to the Ninevites. Oh, God, I don't want to go over there. I want you to completely destroy them because they deserve it. The, these people were so brutal. Uh, when, I was, when I was reviewing the, the Jonah talk that we had, um, he was talking about that they would take the skins of their enemies and put them on their walls. They would take heads of people and stick them on, stick them on poles. That's really not, I mean, that's brutal. This is a brutal crew. Vengeance is justified, but it must be God's vengeance, not mine. Because if I do it, it will be imperfect. It won't be justified. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Then we move to the next statement. The Lord is slow to anger, but strong in power. The, the first section of this is, yeah, they get theirs. But, and I, I still debate on this one, where this fits in. Because this is written to Israel. And this statement, as we saw in the Nahum video, this statement actually comes from Exodus chapter 34. And, and it was right after that it was right after the Israelites had done what? They had made the golden calf. And, and Moses is coming down with the second set of tablets, right? He had to reboot. And he, he takes the second set of tablets in there. The Lord is slow to anger. And the Israelites are probably thinking, thank you, God, that you are slow to anger. But he says in the second half of this, but he is strong in power. Now, Jonah, this is exactly why Jonah did not want to go to, to Assyria and preach. Because he knew this. He, the Israelites had experienced it. God was justified in wiping out the Israelites at the, foot, at, at the, at the mount. They had worshipped this cow after God had saved them from Egypt. Had totally forgotten in a moment's time. He could have wiped them out, but he said, the Lord is slow to anger, but strong in power. So Jonah knew that when he went to Nineveh. And he knew that if, they, if these people repented, God would not destroy them. Because that is God's character. He had shown it to the Israelites. But here's the interesting thing here. And I, I will preface this that I'm not 100% sure that this is what this is saying. But I think this message is accurate with the character of God. I think this is also a warning to Israel. And it's a warning to Israel because it says it's being spoken to them saying, look, I'm slow to anger but strong in power. I'm tree remember that in your past, Israel, but keep in mind, this is a judgment to Nineveh 
who has already, who repented once and has gone back to their own ways. If I'm Israel, or if I'm Judah right now, I'm thinking, could I get mine? God is an avenging God. God is a jealous God. He is slow to anger, but strong in power. The next section in Nahum is, says, goes on for a few verses, and it describes this power. And I want you to hear this. It says, this is the living translation. I'm not, or I, I'm not a big fan of this translation because it's, it's a little too casual, but I think the, it, it gets a good picture here. In verse 6 of Nahum 1.6, says, Who can stand before his fierce anger? Who can survive his burning fury? His rage blazes forth like fire, and the mountains crumble to dust in the presence. Huh. Huh. This is not a God to take lightly. This is not a God that we can just, hey. This is a holy God that has power that we can't even fathom. This is the creator of the universe. This is God. And then the last statement, the Lord is good and a refuge in times of struggle. So he goes and he sets this up. We have he's an avenging God. He's a jealous God. He's slow to anger but strong in power. And then the last one that he says in Nahum is the Lord is good and a refuge. He's a refuge. This completes the whole thing. So in this time when, when uh, Israel or when Jerusalem is being attacked and they're, they're worried about this constant thing called Assyria and this, this demon that it is, he reminds them, that yes, I'm avenging, I'm jealous, righteous, good jealousy based on who he is. I'm slow to anger, but strong in power. And then he says, I'm good. And I'm a refuge in times of trouble. Run to him. This makes perfect sense, especially if we go back to Hezekiah when the, when the armies are camped around him. Where do you go? Who do you trust in? You're going to listen to the, the Assyrians? No. You listen and take refuge in God. Lean on him. Run to him. Trust in him. I think there are three responses we can have to these three statements. And those three statements are we can either reject this we can trust in this God and or we can rest in this God. It is your right. I don't know where you are today. I don't know why, why you walked in to these doors. But you have the right to ignore all of this. You can reject it. God gives us the ability to do that. Sometimes I wish he did not. But God will not change 
just because you reject that. And you have to wrestle with it and have the questions. I I can almost guarantee you there are no questions that you have that I haven't asked. I'm a skeptic. I'm a cynic. I've asked the questions. Come talk to me. Talk to, to, to Craig. Talk to the elders here. Talk to people about those questions. That's okay. That's not necessarily rejecting this. But you have the right to say, this is bunk. I don't believe any of it. You can take your chances with a God and say, I don't think this is real. I believe there's plenty of evidence for it. And most of, a lot of people here can tell you that evidence. But if you reject it, understand that I believe that the Bible clearly says that you will be held accountable for that. And that you will have to face that God who is slow to anger but strong in power. Even the New Testament, Christ talks about a kingdom. He goes out in one of the parables. He says, I have this banquet. And he invites a bunch of people to this banquet in John 14. And he invites the people to the banquet. Some of them, the, the first layer of people say, I'm too busy, I don't want to come. And then they start killing his messengers. He says, Jesus says in that, he says that the king sent out an army and went and destroyed those people. Justified than his actions to do so. But Jesus reaffirms the wrath and the judgment of God. But then he goes on to say, and he invites other people. That is rejecting. Or you can trust in this God. You can trust in a God that is good. And you can put your hope in him. In John chapter 12, multiple times, In John chapter 12, and and I'm running on the edge of time, but that's okay. You'll throw me out. Um, That's right. Um, John chapter 12, he says this, because this is important, folks. John chapter 12, 14, 46. Listen to how many times he says this. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness, believe. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him, the word that I have spoken. There is a contrast of reject and believe. Believe, trust in this God. And then finally rest in him. We can rest in who this God is. Man, there's some horrible stuff going on. Our, our brothers and sisters in Iraq talking about ISIS have been faced with horrible persecution or just now being able to enter back into their, their countries, into their areas, without fear of being, having their heads cut off. And I mean, I, I'm sorry that sounds brutal, but it's true. We don't face that but they can rest in the assurance that regardless of what this world throws at them, they have a God that will bring justice, that will, that is jealous for them. There is a hope there, folks. Whatever you're going through today, the, 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 the Syrians may be at your door. You may have financial problems. You may be fainting facing cancer. Your family may be falling apart. Your life may seem in tatters. 
I've, I went through about six months ago through some really hard struggles with some anxiety and stuff like this. And I felt those Assyrians at my door. The only place I could run and rest in was in this God. I, he walked me through it. Our three responses to this God is to reject, trust, or rest. We're going to go into communion. And I want to encourage you, as you go into, decide which ones of these. If you do not know Christ today, if you have not trusted in him, this cup is not for you. And Craig's going to come up and, and talk. I'm not trying to steal your thunder here. Which one of these three are you going to do today? If you do not know Christ, if you have not trusted in him ever, I want to ask you today, trust in him. Listen to the words of the cup and the communion and take that step to trust in him. And if you know Christ today, rest in it. Rest in his sacrifice. Rest in him and who he is. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the love that you have given us. Thank you that you are a jealous and avenging God. Thank you, Father, that you are a good God and a refuge in time of struggle. And most of all, Lord, thank you for your cross and for your son. I praise you, Father. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name.